0: To another edition of truth and rhythm brought to you by stuff.net. this is the interview show that gets deep into the pocket with contemporary music's foremost masters of the groove in video format at FunkinStuff.net and on youtube truth and rhythm can now also be enjoyed on the go in its audio podcast edition from FunkinStuff.net, itunes and most leading providers i'm your host scott dr gx qualified musicologist and author of everything's on the one the first guy to funk Get your copy at Amazon. Whether you're watching or listening, I thank you so much for your continued support and interest. And you tuned into a great show once again today because my guest is singer Joe Pep Harris, best known for his decade of work with the Motown singing group Undisputed Truth. That's right. The group, along with um, the other two singers, Billy Ray Calvin and Brenda Joyce Evans, Got very well known being produced by Norman Whitfield the legendary producer out of Motown who? uh, Was responsible for so many of the great temptations hits and other songs like that and undisputed truth actually covered several temps hits as well Their biggest one was smiling faces in 1971 which went to number three on the pop charts they had eight albums in the 1970s and eight top 40 r&b singles And some of those other singles I just want to share with you before bringing Joe on. Um, Got them right here. So we had Smiling Faces in 71. In 72, the cover of Papa's Rolling Stone, the Temp's uh, great hit, went to 24. And uh, 74, Help Yourself, was another high-charting hit. And 76, You Plus Me Equals Love. And actually, that's the name of the song, but I, I can't say without saying Ann Harmony because that's what I'm used to. But uh, that's actually the track that really got me into the group because, in my age range, I was a teenager then. And that was a, a huge hit song, got to number five in the dance charts. So, with all that said, I am so honored and happy to have with us today Joe Pep Harris. Joe, how are you doing today? I'm great, Scott. How are you doing? I'm doing well. I'm great. Yeah, so you're coming to us from Motor City.
1: Yeah. Yeah. They're home Motown. I'm back in Detroit. Yeah. And, um, it's great. I'm, I'm working on a few things and you know, how, you know you'll see how it goes. Excellent. I've been missing up to have another stretch in my career from the 50s. So, yeah. Wow. Well,
0: you look great, you know, so congratulations on that.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: So Joe, tell me a little bit about, you know, how you guys got started, um, must have been amazing to be around that environment at that time uh motown just legendary with all those great acts and Barry gordy what was it like being at the center of that
1: wow uh, wow i mean i was um let me just reflect how i reflect yesterday i was we had a welcome back home to detroit to Brittany joyce evans who was the original lead singer with us and uh, after all these years, and she's back looking great, sounding just as great. And we had uh, so many folks there and everybody was talking about that era. Mostly, you know, everybody from Motown and some other folks from some of the other companies that were, Melvin Davis. I um, mean, he'd been arranged to Temptation's first drummer, the Smokey's first drummer, big writing career with Don Davis and JJ Barnes, they wrote for everybody. And, uh, and that was the whole reflection of how we get a chance now to reflect and see about the things that we never were really looking at we were living it. Mm-hmm. you know people talk about it we were living and so we get to, to, to talking to other folks that were there and seeing their opinions and hearing the things that they how they felt and thought about it in their younger ages you know i was like wow this is i mean this is a god moment you know um and yesterday was just more than just a, a getting together of us. I mean, it was really a, a moment to reflect back. I mean, something that you just asked me about, uh, the way you asked me, you know, it seemed so simple to be able to answer. But like I said, we were living it. And I, I run into people that were there and I started remembering, wow, 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 Will Hatcher, uh, oh, uh, it's dramatics I mean it was so many folks uh, yesterday JJ Vons uh, McKinley Jackson I mean all these folks when I started you know and we were just uh, uh, reflecting in Motown when I got with Motown then the irony of that is I when I when I got out of high school last night I started singing with uh, 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 a group called the peps And that was everything from the day that I stepped out of high school. Later, after I was out of high school, my cousin, Lee Rogers, who was a very popular singer in Detroit at that time, took me to a club. First night that I walk into this club, the first person I see is Walter Jackson, David Ruffin. So I was like, wow, I'm right in the middle of it. And before that night is over, I had met everybody from, uh, Richard Street to Betty Levette, you know, and that became my hangout. <laughs> you know, I had to put a mustache on a lot of times to being out there in some of those places, but I was there. There was so much talent. I mean, there's a lot of talent in Detroit right now. The difference between then and now is the opportunities. The opportunities, since I've been back here in Detroit three years, i see i feel that there's some sort of suppression of all the things that make or made the era from which i came from today because with all the technology today we shouldn't have any problems about having an environment that would recreate and keep creating we were enjoying Uh, we never thought about it it was all second nature but when I think about it now i go there's like one place in detroit that we would go and and, and people would meet up to hang out it's it's called bert's and you run into people from way back in the era from four tops to uh kim weston all those folks hang, go going to birds and have a drink have something to eat maybe watch a jazz show or a blues show it's got three or four different parts in there so people go in there and then hang out for many different things because in the places where people get the opportunity to perform that's how i learned i didn't learn to perform by rehearsing i learned to. Re- i got out of school i went straight to a stage somewhere and i'm and oh, in, in it i was like whoa and i was on the right i was trying to figure out what i was going to do i mean I had a scholarship but you know i was like whoa i uh this singing thing because i had started singing i recorded my first record in the 50s um uh, the, the joe in the moroccos and when i got out of junior high school went to high school my mama mixed that all of that no saying you're gonna get a diploma and do whatever you need to do after that so i did that and um i was with the ohio players and um uh, there was a lot of uh, uh, creative difference between myself and the new guy who happened to be voted the band leader then, because he was trying to concept the group. At a particular time had just left the Peps, well we were still working back and forth with the Peps. I was working with the Peps and doing something, something as a solo artist, and working with uh, the Ohio players. We were forming the Ohio players then. And um,
0: so, who was the leader uh, of the Ohio players at that time? What what year are we talking?
1: Uh, 1967 68 60 after the riots in Detroit 69 I would go back to about 69 this was just before I got well 68 years. I've been working back and forth Of course I had been working with them when they were the Ohio players with the peps and then I did a lot of solo work with them as as the Ohio as Ohio untouchables I'm sorry and um, uh, when the Ohio untouchables broke up i was with robert ward for a year and before that year was out Satch from the ohio players later to be ohio players came and said man we we got a lot of work and we need somebody to front the group and i was like oh yeah because i mean robert wasn't working a lot and i was working back and forth like i say with the pep so i out i started working with the ohio players we formed as the ohio players and the only thing that i didn't was I didn't sign a contract with a production company that they signed signed with it's called Compass productions I didn't like the contract you know and I didn't sign and that was the first little um impasse that I got with the guy that was leading the group at that time uh he was the the band leader he was a drummer and when uh, um when right on down the down the road where he he wanted me to uh, my show was a variety with the ohio players we did played all kind of music and i could sing all those different genres from rock to anything and james brown a lot all james brown and wilson pickett i was like oh no <laughs> no so i started getting fan on a lot of shows and stuff and i started complaining about it and one day he came and said well we're going to go in a different direction i mean crush me i was crushed i was with the one of the baddest bands in the land creative differences you know and I left that that day we were in, um, um we had just finished in uh, Evansville Indiana and I left and went to Louisville Kentucky I used to work for Harvey Kuqua, who was with the moon gloves and at Motown at that time he had a club in Evansville, Indiana, so I let him know that I, I knew I was going to be leaving the group because we, when they start talking about meetings, you know, between he, he and I, one of us was going to go. You know, and I, I don't never be in anything that's a friendship train. You know, it's really, the, if this is how you want to go, y'all go this way, we'll because I'm serious about this. This is what I do. Um, I got fired that Sunday and that Wednesday I opened up in a club in Louisville called the Golden Barrel with a group at that time were called Nightlighters. And um, when I got there, Harvey was talking to me and he said, Well, uh, uh, I want you to do a couple of weeks here with the nightlighters, which I did. And at that time I was living in Toronto and Detroit. So uh, we decided that we were gonna be a group and I booked some dates in Toronto we left and went to Toronto while we were in Toronto I would run back and forth in between uh, off days and come to Detroit and when I got to Detroit uh, Bobby Taylor was in the 20 grand club walked into the 20 grand and the got it only 20 grand at one time that managed me when I was with a group called the peps and um, he um, he asked me what we were doing because he had a show, he needed a show behind Bobby Taylor and them because whoever was supposed to come in would canceled because somebody got sick. So I said, Well, I got a, a, a new group. And he said, Well, come on in. I came in with a guy named Theron T. Man here. And uh, we went and opened the 20 grand as the Nightlighters, Joe Theft and the Nightlighters. We didn't book like that because I've never been, I didn't want my name, to be a part of everything. But yes, he, they put that up on the thing like that. So anyway, in those 10 days in there, Norman Whitfield was there every night, except the last night. Norman Whitfield and Clay McMurray. Clay McMurray was another writer, producer at uh, Motown who had a big hit with um, uh, Gladys Knight, If I Were Your Woman. And, um, and he did Stand By Me, Spider Turner. He did quite a few things. Daughter sings the things with uh, uh, Blackstone, very, uh, and Clay is still tight today. He's the guy that came up with the name Undisputed Truth. When we were searching names, we had a whole lot of names that we went through ice cream and then Undisputed Truth. So before we decided on what name we were going to use. So uh, Norman uh, that last night at the 20 grand, Norman Whitfield um got asked had Clay to come down. Norman was in the studio with the Timps that night. And Clay came and told me, said Norman I wanna see you tomorrow, Monday, if Motown if you're gonna be in town. I say okay, you know and the guys were 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 supposed to go back to that next day, but Harvey Fuqua, who was working for Motown, and we were working for him, and look happened to be in Detroit at that time, and he asked the guys in the band, were you if they were off, and they were saying, yeah, we're gonna be off for two weeks, and he said, well, look, I got this, the Spinners need a band. So they were gonna go on the road with the spinners. Now this was, we, we hadn't talked about none of this before I knew what Norman wanted. You know, and I'm just saying this because all these things happen approximately at around the same time. Norman offered me a position in a group that he wanted to form. And I kept going to see it every night. And he said, man, I've seen you at the 20 grand a million times with every situation I've seen you and you've excelled. you know, you have he said, "I was wondering, well, what you gonna do behind the peps and then what you gonna do behind this?" And then I come in with the night lighters and they were killing. And uh, they eventually end up being called Newberg. When I left, the Wilson brothers came into the group, and, and uh, Lottie, who was uh, who Javi uh, had been recording in and out of Motown, but, uh, they they joined the group, and he changed the name of the group. I left and went with Norman. He offered me an opportunity because he said he wanted to put. This is what how if people I've heard of a thousand stories about the undisputed truth in Norman Whitfield's reason for putting this group together. He this is what he told me. For years, uh, we were uh, the Peps were a nemesis in the sense as a, to the to Motown because. We came on stage with no a vengeance for anybody. It wasn't personal, but we were the only, always the only group on those shows without a hit record. <laughs> so the only thing we could do, we had, had going for us was to perform. So the, the, the higher the status of that persons that we were performing in front of was how we mentally put ourselves together to make sure that when the date was over, people gonna remember us. The, the guy thing that we, Say so we got to make sure that everything we do count. So um, <clears throat> Norman Whitfield at that time would tell us, he said, "Some people may be coming to try to sign you guys in Motown. Don't come, cause they want to set you down." You know, and I had already happened heard that because I know the Dramatics and a few other groups that went to Motown and they told them, "We don't need no other groups. We're great with groups. We don't need another group." So I mean, you know, but I mean, just hear it out. And 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 the secret, uh, in reality, for what we, what we had going for us, that we were signed. Uh, we had been signed to Nor- uh, Barry's first wife, Bill McGoy. And so nobody really approached us until we left that and signed with Martha Jean the Queen, who was a big DJ in Detroit, and Roger Brown and Pete Hall, who were football players, pro football players, and they were the ones that orchestrated our career on an upward spiral. Every, everything we did before that was on from the muscle. We would we would go and open shows for folks, the Dales. The Dales used to call us all the time, say, man, we we got a, a, a tour coming. We got three or four people that we want to put on this. We need you guys to open and we would do those things. And then we started doing the theaters with no hit record. So in the theaters with no hit records, you know, you look back and you say, who's who's on the show we opening?" So by the time the OJs or the, uh, the Dales or uh Chuck Jackson or somebody come on, they're gonna be forgot about us. So we we're gonna open this show. We want them to remember the opening, or we wanna open like we were closing. <laughs> we didn't have it six minutes most of the time. And we got a reputation for being tightly performed because one of the guys in the group, Ronnie Abner, was a trained dancer. I mean, and a dancer like no other dancer if james brown was alive. he would tell you it's the first week we were in the apollo we went with chuck jackson to the apollo to get seven days there we had did 10 days in the 20 grand with chuck jackson and yvonne fair huge success with chuck jackson was the um i would say the uh, uh, marvin gay of his time i mean he didn't mean he, guys around him like uh, 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 Benny King and, and Lloyd Price and all those guys, but at this particular point in time, Chuck Jackson was king, and we came into Detroit and he hired us to open. So this guy gotta be bad, you know, because we used to go watching. So we had to put our show together with Chuck, and knowing that he had the baddest, one of the baddest bands in the land. So we tightened up. We put our show together and did ten days in the twenty grand. And the thing that he said he liked about our show was it was never the same every night. We sing the same songs because you know we had to learn those with his band. But every night we did a different show only because we were from Detroit and Motown set the standard then. And their standard was train all your acts so that they can perform, to be together, to have the finesse and all those things. We stole all of the little stuff we can get, the other stuff, David Ruffin, the guys like that when they used to see give us little tips about things that that they learned and that would help us. So we, we put that stuff together and Ronnie Abner groomed us uh, to be able to watch C and what we used to call, watch me and then we'd go from there. We always had a basic rhythm or a basic step. If you ever seen, um, uh, 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 what's the name, that, the, the, the female singer from Europe that died a few years, uh, Amy Winehouse. You ever see the guys behind her and how they had a base. We would go to some basic step and I, every time I see them, I'd see the peps to a certain degree, but we had a little bit more a little bit more rhythm in, in the movements of our steps so that you can know that it was something that was crafted, but we had our individualists Didn't rehearse it. We got it, worked it out and then let it go. So we do it when we we're on stage, it's all in timing. And um, we did those seven days at the uh, Apollo. And at the end of the at the end of the uh, the last night, Chuck's manager came to the uh, uh, dressing room and said that Chuck couldn't take us no further. He said there's too much heat on the shelf. <laughs> this is exactly words he said. Yeah, uh, making work too hard. Mm-hmm. We were supposed to go to the Bahamas, but you know. So instead of uh, um, I, I mean, we was crushed. I mean, we was really crushed because you know we first we saw an example, and then the thing that was really questioned about it was not because we weren't good enough, you know. But you know, we you know, and that was his show, and he him him knowing how entertainers think, he knew that. uh, Well, uh, let me. I ain't gonna get into Chuck's head, but I mean, this is how I deduced it. He knew what was happening that these guys were working hard which was causing him to work hard. All of them, we didn't never let her. We would do, we would open the show in the Apollo four times a day. And every show, people were in the first part of the show to catch the paps. We didn't have no hit records, but they said these guys were performing and flipping and spinning. And the guy that was the um, the, the stage man, Honey Cones, he was from Bartville, And he told us after that, Chuck Jackson, he said, whatever you guys are doing, he said don't change anything <laughs> you know people telling y'all y'all need to be choreographed like the pips and all that and the pips were the best i've ever seen so you know we didn't want to be the pips and the name peps came from richard street okay. richard street started the peps and uh, that was with balance but anyway uh chuck left left us in the apollo at the end of the day the guy from the apollo bobby shipman offered us another seven days we took it of course we took it opening for Tommy Hunt at sh- his show and at the end of the Tommy Hunt show we after the Tommy Hunt show we were we were we were pretty sure that we were going to be coming back to the Apollo more than but Rocky G who was a big DJ in New York was coming into the Apollo with the with the show called the battle of the groups and he came to us and said um uh, I'm gonna stick you guys on the show and I'm gonna to have to just make hand flyers. Your name won't be up on the outside of the thing, but but they end up putting it up there way at the bottom, of the peps, all in on the polos, which is the first time we ever had. It, that's why I mentioned that. And um Edwin Starr was on the show with us. Edwin Starr was a very good friend of ours. In fact, Edwin Starr was one of the guys that when I was with the PEPS, we uh as we traveled around the country and worked with different places, we'd run into folks, and we ran into Edwin Starr first in Detroit, and then we both were playing in Buffalo, New York. And Edwin Starr was saying, man, I got to go back to Detroit. I mean, he said he was working for Bill Doggett, and he wanted to do something different. But he had a, a, a some kind of arrangements with Bill Doggett, and every time they leave, they get on a bus and go. And so he wanted to go to Detroit. He didn't have no way he jumped in the car with us. <laughs> We took him in Detroit the rest of his stuff was history double o soul and that was history didn't see him no more until I got to motown I mean we've seen you know I didn't go to too many shows we were working all the time but I've seen him in passing but when I got with Motown he and I were being produced by Norman Whitfield and that was an irony but uh uh and I'm saying all of this in this in this fashion is because uh i I've never thought about that had been asked that question by many people, many guys that I've uh, uh, interviewed with. And, you know, you think spontaneously of what come on, come at your head at the moment. And then when that's over, you say, wow, I could have uh, said a lot of things. And Martha Jean, who was my manager for a long time, I went on, uh, we did, we went to, uh, to Memphis. They heard Hall sent us to Memphis to do. An album, or do some things for an album with uh, Willie Mitchell. This was during the time of Al Green's <laughs> uprising in '67. I think this was around '66, '67. And um, uh, and I went as soon as the record was released. I went on the radio with her to talk about <laughs> the record, and I was talking like I'm talking to you now about the careers and how we got. To, what she asked about how the Peps got together, and I just started talking. <laughs> got through she got off the air she said joe pep you talk too much <laughs> and i was like what she said what did we get on what did we come on here to talk about and I that's she, well, she said lucky at the, i had a, a half a minute to play it <laughs> you got through running your damn mouth so i you know I, it's very hard for me to uh, answer those questions i can say this that if you were in Detroit and you wanted to be a musician, you wanted to be a dancer, you wanted to do anything in those performing arts, you better be good, or you better and you better be committed, because I mean I see people walking around Detroit now that has, that has had so much prominence in their career, and then when you think about all the other folks from Hank Ballard, Lil Willie John, Jackie Wilson, all those folks. That we hear the spinners, the, the 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 originals, the 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 Falcons, Wilson Pickett. It was crazy. I mean, it was crazy. And the only way that you can deal with it was compartmentalize. What I'm doing the night, and you go up, get up at, or get ready at night to go out to do your performance and you happen to look at a newspaper and you see all the other folks that are in town at the same time you are and with the peps i could i could i could never say i think of us performing in any of those venues that we performed in detroit and they weren't sold out or they weren't close to before ever ever i mean we became the only person that i've seen that had that kind of popularity there at had to, that i had to to and the only way that i could see it was to go in between shows at the club that i was playing that one night was dennis efforts dennis Edwards popped into detroit one year and started opening at a club he was the of a musician that sang at that time had his little band and musician that sang and one night we were on our way to the 20 grand the chit chat the 20 grand 20 grand And we went past this club, it was called Mars. And there was a line of women all up to the end of the block. And I'm like, wow, you know, I never thought about that being a club. What they they got going on in there? Never thought about it. And then somebody started mentioning, you ever go to Mars? One Monday night, we were going over to catch Dennis Edwards. And we went over there, we couldn't even get in. I mean, on a Monday night, we couldn't get in. the only way we could go catch Dennis Epples to see what he was doing was one night in between the, the the club that we were playing at, I think the 20 grand then on a break, we did three shows. And at the end of the first show, we jumped in the car and ran. Somebody drove us over to Mars. We caught a show. Caught Dennis was caught part of his show, and he was killed. I was like, oh, I understand. This guy's bad I mean, he got a nice band, he play an organ. And he was he was killed. I can't take it away from me. He was, killed. and I was like, and he wasn't dancing, wasn't doing nothing, sitting up there playing and singing. It had so much personality. And that was a microcosm of every, mostly all the clubs. It was just about some of those folks were going to make it, a lot of those folks weren't going to make it. And a guy like Barry Gordy at that time had the ability and the and the and the and the vision to say, let me go while all this competition is brewing together and pick and choose and pick and choose. And that guy, Nikki Stevenson, by him being out on the streets, he knew where everybody was. So he would go and get people and bring them in there. And next thing you know, boom, Stevie Wonder. You know, all, and so when you're able to pick and choose a, in a in a, an environment of talent where everybody is really competing with themselves. You can see somebody that is very free to pain. pain you see something and she was singing jazz. She wasn't singing no rhythm and blues, the four tops. The very first time I saw the four tops was at a club called uh um uh the flame show bar. And I saw them from the doorway, I wasn't old enough to go in. I they cracked the door and I could stand there in the little hall hallway there and look straight on the stage and watch these guys come out there singing. Them. I mean nothing like you ever heard them at, at motown anything period i mean a whole different genre motown took them and turned them into a recording group with the with the sound that that made them famous top and bottom unisons, but to sing harmony and i've been around a lot of groups guys do i've been going to sing harmony you could not touch the four tops you could not touch them if you ever heard the four freshmen they sound like they copied off the Four Tops, because you would have never thought the Four Tops were black. They saying that those pitch and those movements were so, they were, they were, I mean, it was just something to see. And then for me as a performer to think about, how y'all go from that to that, but they had traveled around with some of the biggest acts doing all of that. And this was just a progression to something else recording. They had never had a recording uh, uh, situation. And I looked at that when um uh, Norman was putting the the Undisputed Truth together, because I had never seen the female singers before. You know, and I'm used to being on the stage with a ton of testosterone. <laughs> you know, where we jump in each other's arms and do the skits and flips over each other's heads and all kinds of jump off the stage. One one guy would make sure that he was gonna jump off the stage. And land in an hour where I'm on the other side going and landing an hour in the splits. And Tommy would jump and go across the table and come down in the splits, and we all come up and all that kind of stuff. I mean, that's what that was what it was known for. And so I had to rethink I uh, put myself in a Motown frame of mind. I had a lot of friends over there. And um, and to really not try to uh, see. What I wanted to see, because I didn't know, I didn't know what it was going to be like, and the only thing that, uh, uh, that my suggestion or my input in the, in the original concept was the group was that I did not want to be a male singer with two background singers singing on the side of me. I didn't want to be, you know, nothing like that because that is, it, it is so to me has been so limited because they weren't going to ever do anything but that. I've never seen a very active lead singer with two female singers that did anything other than stand over there and look cute. And I want performance. And because, I'm, uh, you know, I couldn't rehearse no show, you know, like uh, like uh, 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 a lot of the big acts would put those shows together and rehearse it and rehearse it. I did that once I uh, put the Undisputed Truth together app. for those, uh, for you plus me and all those things. We rehearsed six months in SIR in LA. You're familiar with that and we normally have us in there every day from six from 12 to six the singers and the musicians and when those musicians came out of there they went to the studio rose rush with those which guys would end up being rose rush they would go in they didn't we didn't flip-flop like that until after rose rush became an entity but that at, at, when we were putting a from a lot of the other groups and normal would put all these groups into um Sir, to, to so that he was trying to steal a little of the Motown thing. You've got to rehearse these people every day so that when they go on the stage, they would have a concept. We hadn't gotten to the point where we would stage the whole show. We didn't do that until Rose Royce got great. I mean, they had those gold and double platinums and all this So It became uh, a necessity, you know, to take the 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 street out of it and 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 present that act as a polished act. Playing off the cool in the gang with a female. See, so that was kind of the concept that Norman and I were talking about. In fact, the girl that ended up with uh, Rose Royce was actually I brought her back or had her come back to be to L.A. to be the new lead singer in the Undisputed Truth. But that movie was up, and I wasn't released from my contract in Motown. And car Wash at that time. Was a uh, was something like a sequel to Coolie High. Mm-hmm. Now Motown had the record recording rights to all the music of Coolie High, which was Coolie High is a cult film right now. But the music was more profitable than the movie. Smokey did the the music, and that's when the Boys to Men came out. One that song makes uh, all time greatest song from. It's so hard to say goodbye to that. And when Norman was leaving Motown and we were forming Whitfield Records in L.A., my contract was I was still under contract to uh, um, Whitfield. So in order for me to get out of that, Norman to get me out of that, it's been a lot of cost him a lot of money and the rights to that song, You Plus Me, which ended up going to Motown see but i couldn't be i couldn't i wasn't allowed to have any part in the film i was going to be we that the music was going to be done by undisputed truth but norman kept the project and we were riding the vegas one day and i was like man it's really I, I say man it's really bothering me that that soundtrack is just going out there as a soundtrack i said man we got so much stuff on the track somebody need to be able to make norman turned around on the highway Came all the way back. We got to Warner Brothers just before oh, to MCA, just before they were closing. In fact, they were closing. There was a few people, and Norman went in there and caught the guy that he was looking for, and they sat down and they was they was elated with that idea, you know. And we stayed. We didn't go to Vegas. We stayed there. Had the guys in the group come together, and we said, "Look, uh, you got to. One of you guys going to be an act." from the fifth. And that was the beginning of Rose Royce. Wow. That's so much history, Joe. Uh, it's It's hard to, you know, and you're talking about 40 and 50 years in between then and now, you know, because I mean the things that basically like I ended up into was, you know, after my Motown, um, uh, stint, you know, that really set me up for what was happening with Whitfield.
0: Well, I want to go back, though, Joe, to uh, the earlier part of Undisputed Truth. Okay. So, um, it was you and the two girls, which was, you know, something different, like you said. But um, what was the concept beyond that that was sort of presented to you for that? Because, And how, how, how was it decided which
1: material that you guys would do? General concept was a cross between Slide and the Family Stone and the Fifth Dimensions. Now, if you, you can visualize that as a, from a performer, you don't see no background singers nowhere. Everybody is an individual, is a participant in the act. You know, everybody has uh has a, a, a an image to pertain. If, if, if all the uh, the only other group in in Motown at that particular time, because at that time, I mean, they had the Spinners. You didn't know everybody in the spin. You know, it took a string of hits before everybody's face became, you know, oh he sang with the space. You know, or they did that. So what we did was to we wanted to 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 be a self-contained group. Uh, Papa was the Rolling Stone. You say we covered that. we would we did the original of that. The temptations did the copy <laughs> of that. That's another story. I put that in the book. I don't want that to be uh I have to say that like it was, and I want it to be in the book because I mean, that is something that I did an interview in England, and a guy said, You know what, you never would have known that if you hadn't said it. Most people don't say that, but I was telling it like it happened and like it was. But I, you know, but that's the, and and I was going back to the concept. Uh, uh, Norman Whitfield wanted, um, uh, he he, he figured that if I can cross the fifth dimensions and sliding the family stone without mimicking them, then I can have a group where the participation in the group with the with the male and the female members could be something that be more of an entertainment thing rather than just a singing and a backup, and two backups. So uh, everybody had lead parts, you see smiling faces, your turn, your turn, your turn. So we, 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 that groomed them for that. Now those girls were a bit, like I say, they were very, very great. Brenda still a very excellent singer, great ear. You know, they sang behind Stevie on Angel Mountain, I mean um Stevie on um uh, Sign Seal Delivered. Uh they have a background on with Dana Ross on Angel Mountain High Enough with Matt with uh, 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 Valerie Simpson and uh it's back up with the four tops on still waters. See, so, so we all those things normally would get these these prod- products, projects, so that they can build their repertoire. And once folks started hearing the, them singing in the background, they did a lot of backup things at Motown. Though I just mentioned some of the things that happened to be big hits, you know. And uh, And in fact, Brenda was telling me a couple of weeks ago that after her solo career, uh, went to uh, up to a stagnant, she went on the road with another lady that sang with me with Eddie Kendricks. So they she ended up her stuff with Motown, well, with Eddie Kendricks after Boogie Down and all those things, that she was on the road with Eddie all the time. So she kept up to that and then she raised her kids. Um uh but that was uh that was how we was foreseeing it and when I say without Planning it. We have to let it happen. I sit today and that was whole, Norman's whole thing every time we went in the studio he would notice that study of smash stone and George Clinton and And I worked with George Clinton for 10 years after atomic Dog, So I really knew what Norman was that way he was coming from with us you learn how to be creative in the studio rather than going in the studio rehearsed I never went in the studio with Norman Whitfield on any project rehearsing it before I went in there. And today, after I've been producing for many years now, I understand the logic in that because how do you keep what you did well? If you rehearse something and you got it down pat and you keep rehearsing it, you don't get it, it don't repeat itself like that. But when you in the studio, when you get it down pat, you capture it. So that's your that's your that's the standard you know it took me two and a half almost three hours to do the first two words in smiling and faces and it got so frustrating for me because the first thing norman did when i realized i heard the track but it wasn't called smiling faces so when norman told me what he was going to do to that track because the, I remember when he first got when we first started after we first got together and had our very first meeting with him was we talking about recording. He was asking me about some things that we may want to do that were already recorded. And the Temptations happened to have smiling faces. The musical version, really, that's what it was. And Norman was preparing himself mentally to do films. So he had that big film track with with the with the Temptations spotly singing in between. I loved it. And uh, when he told me before we were going in the studio that we were going to, the song was going to be Smiling Faces, and he saying, don't listen to Eddie. Well, how was I not going to listen to Eddie? I went and listened to Eddie, Lord, and I was, I was so many motherfuckers, and, <laughs> so, and he made me sit down for about an hour, and he said, because you got to get that out your head. You know, I don't want you doing something, I don't want that. Get Eddie to do that with a new track. You know, so w- when I came back to finish, he's. This is what we did: we putting the, we putting parts on. When I came back to finish, we went to the end of the song. I was having a hard time saying smiling faces because he wanted to create the. He wanted you to see it. He said, "I don't want you saying that." The like, you smiling faces. Son, he's singing it. If he wanted it seen. I'm fresh. I had no, never had a producer like this. This this is the second time, the second project that I did with him. The first one was Save My Love for a Rainy Day, which was a track that he had wrote for Marvin Gaye after too busy thinking about my baby. But Marvin Gaye was somewhere in the world creating what's going on. So Norman had come up with that track, and that was the first thing that we did and uh, when he took it to uh, uh quality control you know that's where they bring the music and people listen to it to to determine what they wanted to release as a company he didn't tell them who it was he played it and everybody everybody jumped on that on that song and norman came back said "Y'all yeah, gotta release <laughs> And <laughs> so planned it like that this was just something for me to get in the studio to become familiar with where I wanted to go We got a release Everybody didn't get a release at Motown because there was a whole lot of folks in there Some with some big names couldn't get a release because there's this new group in there got that spot You know, which it was usually uh, a cycle that goes around. Okay. We got this eight. Okay, this eight so we was we came in and made eight nine so somebody didn't get no release on that day. And uh, uh, that, those were, that's where the competition came inside of Motown. See, so it wasn't like, okay, I would put my record up there. No, 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 no. You can be in that studio and you can be creative and you can do all this, but if you don't have it in, in your mind that you're gonna be judged by these people, these eight or nine people in quality control to determine whether or not you're gonna get a release in this quarter, and you don't want to get pushed out of your quarter because the next quarter, you know, it's Gladys Knight and all those people. You know, so every quarter got a got a big mix of people in there, and you don't want to get in somebody else and be the ninth in somebody else's. So you, you was rolling at that time. People do they eight and they release these eight, release that eight. So we came in there and, and it bumped somebody out of it. Norman never told me you didn't want to get into, to to get in the competition, but the next time for the next release was smiling faces so when Norman went to quality control with smiling faces then they came up with a whole plan okay okay so this is going to be this is the one we're going for and let's work on the album so we started picking and choosing things to try to create a a foundation so that when we went when we went uh, uh, live we had some something to spend on except things that we had just recorded, you know, and except all new music. And that was the things that kind of um, mold us into being able to become more recording minded than just performance, performance minded to see what you gonna rather than the sound like you had with Norman Whitfield, you had to do it all, it had to be seen it had to be seen, So, you know, if you listen to those Temptations songs, a lot of those songs, I mean, I sung before they were ever recorded, but when Norman, when they went to the Temptations and he wanted to come out of the session with it, it was totally different from what I had then. I was like, you know, and I couldn't figure out what I was like, well, I'm gonna say, look, I got my part to do, I, you know, I am familiar. Cause if you notice, Norman had did many remakes on of many of his songs look at Gladys knight and marvin Gaye, smokey and the tips all did "Great grapevine and if you listen to them there's a difference in every one of them in the presentation of it you know it's not somebody mimicking the hat. you wondering how i knew it wasn't it wasn't that you know i mean in the very in the version on that very first i mean the, uh Vine" on that very first undisputed truth record i could never get hair out of my head, and boy, I was cussed out so many times. And we worked our way through it. I mean, he just he just accepted it because now I know what he was trying to get, and it was very hard. It's like me trying to explain it to you and a lot of folks. Unless you do this, it's very hard to uh, really understand what you are trying to do. You know, uh, I'm with the number one writer and producer in the world, and I'm looking for guidance. He's looking for guidance from me to know to be able to take him where he needs to go. And after a while, I mean, after maybe a couple of albums, I think I got it down. By the time we got to Papa Was a Rolling Stone, I had it down pat then. See, so, I mean, I was a little more comfortable, a lot more familiar. And when I listened to the, our first album today, I'm kind of, I have a lot of mixed emotions because I, I see myself in the studio and hearing all the hard times I had, on everything, I can hear what Norman says. I see you thinking. I don't want you thinking. I want your confidence. I don't need no thinking. I don't want you thinking. It's thinking. <laughs> and if you get that I meeting, he will give you a tongue lashing. You know what I'm Come on, come on, one more. Cause I mean, it's very competitive. Then, then right. he, when he get when he get combated, then you know that it's about work. He tired. <laughs>
0: That first album was called Face to Face with the Truth, right? Um, the Undisputed Truth. That's yeah. the first album. Face to Face is the second album. Okay, that's the second album. Yeah. So when, first you first album. Heard, when you first heard Smiling Faces take off, what was that
1: experience like? Oh, Lord have mercy, Scott. I mean, let me tell you something. I'm a guy, I never had a hit record. And when every when it I mean, when it was, I mean, it went rolling, and then all of a sudden you start hearing your record at the top of the hour, and at the you know how that go, and that on the top of the hour the number one record, boom, and then whatever town you're in, and at twelve thirty it is again, you know. So, and then every all my friends, everybody, oh, so I mean, I can't even imagine. I mean, that's when you know that you have gotten to a point that. And then it's 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 got a lot to do with luck. It's got a lot to do with timing and preparation. You know, I, I mean, I could sit back and kind of halfway excel, but it was always about with Norman Whitfield. We got to top that. <laughs> top that. <laughs> we got to top that. I did this one song with Norman uh, Friendship Train Unite the World. uh I can't see the African name wrongly used. And I wanted to, I, I, the things that I heard that I wanted to do, that song was so, uh, uh, I thought was was uh, 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 for me. And we got that album version out and did it. And then when he did it with Dennis Edwards, Lord have mercy, Lord have mercy. You know, uh uh people in the world let me see um um uh you can't be no bigger than the one you were in i mean if he had some lyrics in this in this thing that was i mean it, it made the singer think. you know and dennis edwards was so on to every innuendo and Norman said, i like to put words in dennis edwards mouth he said because when you put him in his mouth he paint the picture with it. You know, and it don't look like a guy did a whole lot of stroke and He just painted. He's the best, he said. I mean, and these are things that he used to talk about that he's ever said in the studio because Norman Whitfield was a taskmaster. He push you and push you, and he said, Gladys Knight is the is the is the artist a, a, a producer's dream in the studio. He said, I write words for her and she said. He said she moaned David Ruffin when he started doing David Ruffin. Listen to the very first things Norman did with David Ruffin. But if you knew Norman, you'd hear Norman Whitfield. David Ruffin listened to Norman, and Norman can't sing, but he got so much soul. I mean, even without a his voice be all up, but the soul in it, you just be, you could catch yourself. Being entertained, he'd be serious. He would look on his face, trying to make those things happen, and you know what he means, you know. And uh, he said Gladys Knight would just almost whisper that stuff out of mouth. He <laughs> like, you know, I was mad at her. I want to sing like that so bad." And I learned a lot of things from his conversations about these 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 people. That's why I know that and I talk about these things because I never really got an opportunity to. And I sit there and listen to him. you come back after you come out of the studio. Only one time I went to a session with the temps with him. And that was, um, he was trying, he, we left a session that we were doing. The temp, Paul Williams was in town to finish the song that he was doing, uh, that Norman was doing. Oh girl, why won't you talk to me on the phone? Every time you disguise your voice, you're running away. And um, um, uh, I sit there and watch that, watch that session that night. And I knew that this was, this whole process was something special. You know, you, 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 you compartmentalize yourself or individualize yourself. But you see, you're a part of a whole lot of things. This guy's working with that and doing that. And you know, pardon, this guy came in off the road to finish this one song so that album can go out. And we went there almost all night. And I thought that I was the only person in the world. Catch in the studio with Norman with there, And then when I saw Paul going over and seeing him, I could hear his thinking and seeing him trying to give Norman what he wanted. I was like, oh, I felt so good. I was like, so good. But when he finished, Lord have mercy. Norman took that. He took bad parts and mixed them and found a good word out of a bad part and stuck it in there. And I was like, Lord, have mercy. <laughs> but we was in there over 100 takes. You know, so Norman said, okay, this thing, you know, because he never rehearsed it. He came in there and started singing it. Because you can hear, oh, girl. You know, because Norman was giving him all those things. And then Paul taking it and put his voice in that and then started living it. And then Norman would never stop him. He let him do so much. And then he'd go back and fix it a little bit. But he always see that word right there. You see him, I see him telling Angie that that word right there marked that. Because he could whatever it is that word, he, the way Paul said it, it's just stood out in the phrasing and the interpretation of what he was trying to get him to say. And this guy, I'm looking at this guy trying to see how he's taking a word and putting it in the spot of a of a whole verse and make and it makes the difference when you hear it. You're like, dang! But that comes, and he you normally know, that comes from being in, in in that competitive machine of Motown. Where he stood in there, watch Smokey and a lot of those other producers, Holland doja Holland doing things, and and on some of those things he was playing tambourines and hand claps and footsteps, all those things mattered and made. He used them to make a difference in the way the music was pushed and how it. When you want to hear that boom, that that one, he put that hand clap in the boom boom, having footsteps running through it, all that boom boom boom, boom 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 boom. That's mostly a very strong kind of thing, but Norman used it. With the George Clinton kind of overtone to it so that it'll pump roll, you funky. Boom, you funky. That's where you oh Norman would say funky. Oh, funky. And, make, and all of a sudden i would be saying that, but you when you ain't saying it, you can hear the music saying it. And Norman and the musicians get it and they get it and they just roll with it. It was, it was,
0: it was very cinematic and uh very
1: orchestrated, you know. <laughs> he was this is, Norman Whitfield was a guy that secretly wanted to be a performer. And he had the, in the studio, cause the Errol Van Dyke and all, Jameson, all those guys used to laugh at him, and he didn't care. He just made sure all oh, this, they used, they used Eddie, Eddie, uh, Eddie Bongo used to always, Norman, when Norman went in there, he used to be Norman, and be trying to do, make that little movement, Norman's going turn it into a dance, and guys be cracking up. But they love working with it. I mean, you could have a guy doing that, but Norman had his body in it, you know. And I was like, "Woo!" Took his shirt off. He come out of there sweating like a pig. <laughs> I was like, "Damn!" And they come out of them tracks, be yeah. that track of of uh, of uh, uh, grapevine on that very first album. Man, Lord have mercy! If you can hear all the stuff going on on that album musically, I was scared. I mean, first of all, I'm singing a Marvin Gaye song big song and the track is kicking me all up in the butt because you can't be comfortable like, well, you're wondering how I knew. So I'm trying to, John, he got another different vibe going on in there. It's drama. You know, not here today, I just get mad. He said, I ain't worried about that. That's I just wanted to cover on me. I, I wanted it to be something, you know, but Norman had a, 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 he had a deadline and he had to make it, you know, and I, and I, today, for a long time, I felt like, hey, Norman told me many years later, he say, you can't you're not responsible for what you don't know. He said, but you can listen to what you did and learn a million things. It'll teach you a million things. And uh, today uh, I am so uh, I am so grateful for the lesson you know, that was a blessing that I got being with Norma Whitfield all those years, you know. Uh, I know that it had to be something because of my best friend at that time who ended up going on the road with me and staying with me all through California on the road with all those groups we had to put together. We put most of the groups together at which, all the group really together at Whitfield Records, Rolls-Royce, uh, uh there was, well. Um Manny Cappy was another group that Norman brought in, and um, uh, uh, Masterpiece was another group that Norman brought in. That I would have picked them from anywhere. I tried to bring Howard Hewitt in at that time, he was a little young group called uh, Beverly Hills, and I, I almost brought those that group in there. And um, uh, uh, Homeboy over at um, with a Shalomar and all those, um, uh, uh, Leon Silvers had a lot. He he had hit records, so he snatched him and got him over there. All those acts over there, you know, Norman would really give him a listen to if I brought him because he knew I knew what kind of person he was. Every, he said, had a meeting, he said, everybody Jordan brought in here, um, we got golden plaque. We gotta keep thinking like that. He said I'm very Gordon today. <laughs> I'm happy He said don't bring me nobody in here if they can't get gold and platinum and when the girl came from Florida uh, And we were working on the sound on the music for the soundtrack, you know and Norman really then he had somebody to go in there and sing and he just I Mean he flowed through it then. I mean it, I, I seen this guy start writing song after song after he got car washed down and the girl, Gwen Dickens, she might hear this, see this thing, but she know. <laughs> she told me, she called me one day and she said, you motherfucker. i always wanted to sing my life, and I go to California and I'm singing in the studio with a lot of goddamn car. <laughs> 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 that was so, funny. she said, I'm the best producer in the world who do Gladys Knight and The Temptations, and I'm singing car, wash. <laughs> she said, with some guys and some strangers. I say, baby, it's as We don't worry about it because it's going to be very important. <laughs> and I seen her. Uh, we did a thing in London. I think maybe six years ago, the five years ago. The last time I played London, she was headlining. And um, there's a bunch of us. Uh, uh, one of the guys from Booker T from the MGS. Uh, one of the guys that used to be leading the uh, average white band. Percy Sledge was that kind of a soul for sure. And Gwen Dickey, who was in, um, living in London now. And she sat on that stage and sang those songs that Norman did, that Norman sat there and wrote for her. And you can I saw all the efforts. I mean, I saw it paying off from that song about a car wash. <laughs> like she come on stage, I say, what you think about car wash now because them people started singing car Wash. she did the joe tex just let them do the whole song <laughs> you know the fact you know, audience start singing the whole audience started performing the whole song and she was there been sitting on the stage on the stage you know, and the mic and so yeah you know and that i say see that's how you become a legend you know when those folks singing your stuff like that you know and they love you that's that's a, that's appreciation but the key it's a song when we when Norman and I split he told me one thing he said you got to use what you got to get what you want he said you may not understand that now he said but you're gonna understand it late when you start trying in other words I didn't give you the repertoire you got to make it work for you I mean in more ways than one the lessons you know the, you got the experience you got the material and and from a Motown point of view when I was when the, when the girls and I were together when we were talking we we can do our show built around a Norman Whitfield songbook where we decided that we're going to do a Norman Whitfield medley in there from all his artists from all the things that Norman Whitfield was, put that in our show and then today people want to hear a variety of things until we we're working on uh doing an album now we're just going to get started that in the next month or so so that's basically where we're we at. You know, I remember I told you, Martha Jean I said, Joe Pepp, you talked to Martha Jennings.